This month, we begin to explore worth and dignity, core key concepts in ethical culture. And I want this morning to look at those ideas, at the idea especially of worth, from a couple of different angles. We'll look at it from a political angle, a personal angle, a a philosophical angle. If I can pronounce philosophical, that's good. And then I want to invite you into our New Year's practice of setting our intentions for the year, our commitments to ourselves and to others. But first, a little bit of fun. I just yesterday got back from vacation. Perhaps some of you have taken vacation in the last couple of weeks as well. And you know the way that it kind of pulls your mind in different directions. Your brain thinks a little bit differently. One of the things that I love to do when I'm on vacation is read novels. And I especially love... um, Well, as some of you know, I particularly love kind of vampire series and werewolf series. That's not where I'm going today in particular, although maybe it'll come up later. Who knows? But there's another series I really enjoy by Alexander McCall Smith, who's written a number of different series of books, but there's one called The Sunday Philosophers Club. I don't know if you know this particular, but it's set in Scotland, and it's kind um, kind of a mystery, kind of an extended musing about life. You know, and it centers around a woman who writes a review, an ethical and philosophical review, um, and edits it, a journal. So there are all these great quotes in these books, and I wrote one of them down. I liked it so much from one of the books in this series called The Charming Quirks of Others. (laughs) That's a great title, actually, isn't it? That could just be my whole platform. The Charming Quirks of Others, Worth and Dignity. No, but here's what she says. She's, she's talking about being a philosopher, what that means for her in her own life. And she says, one of the drawbacks to being a philosopher was that you became aware of what you should not do. And this took from you so many opportunities to savor the human pleasure of revenge or greed or sheer fantasizing. I just loved that quote, the honesty of it, you know. It took from you so many opportunities to savor the human pleasure of revenge or greed or sheer fantasizing. We talked a little about this idea, actually, back in December. That was last month, as you might remember. It's been a while, I know. When we explored the theme of celebration, we talked about what it means to be a community like ours, a community where rather than engaging in schadenfreude, right, rather than engaging in those human pleasures of revenge or greed or sheer fantasizing, We instead comfort each other in loss and celebrate with each other in joy. A West member after one of those platforms reminded me about that lovely quote that joy shared is joy multiplied and loss shared is loss diminished. And I think that's that's core, really. It's so central to who we are as a community in our celebratory and our caring life together. But the real reason for that, the reason why we talked about that in December, is what we're exploring this month in January, our affirmation of the worth in every person. 
worth, the affirmation of worth, is really kind of where it all started for ethical culture. You know, Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, some of you know the story. He was studying to be a rabbi like his father, and he went off to Europe and was a student of students of Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, where he learned about one of Kant's basic, um, basic prepositions that human beings can never be a means to an end but that rather they must always be an end in and of themselves. And that so struck the young Felix Adler that he carried it with him. He carried with him, too, the study of many different religions, which was kind of a new a new academic study in Europe at that time. So he did some comparative religion work. And then he came back all ready to, to prepare to be a rabbi and... Um, uh, preached one one sermon, you know, at his father's synagogue, where he was expected to take over the seat, and uh, and decided to can it all, and instead start his own movement at um, at 24. So, if you have any New Year's resolutions about getting a lot done in your in your life, I don't, forget it. We all missed it anyway, you know. <clears throat> so, yes, at 24, started ethical culture, and he started it with that foundational principle the importance of the worth of every person. I actually love especially the way that Adler talked about it, and some of you have heard this before, of course. The idea that in ethical culture, it's not quite that we, that we believe in the worth of every person. It's, it's certainly not that we see it. Adler actually has a great, a great line where he talks about how infrequently he really sees worth in other people. There's all kinds of people doing terrible things out there in the world, right? Instead, what Adler says is that he affirms the worth of every person. He positively affirms that it is so, whether he sees it there or not, despite, as he says, all evidence to the contrary. He affirms that every person has worth. I think of this as our leap of faith in ethical culture, the affirmation of worth in every person. And that's why it's so central to who we are, where we began way back in 1876, and who we are now. And frankly, it's kind of annoying. Alexander McCall Smith, the author of that novel, had it on the nose it's really sort of time-consuming and, 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 and annoying to think that everybody has worth. I mean, really, every single person, that goat lady, too, from our story, with her goats eating off pieces of her house and, you know, littering up the neighborhood with their, with their trash, the goat lady, the, the person who does wrong, who makes big and tragic mistakes... Our spouse and partner, I mean, really everyone, (laughs) every single person. We'll have a little more on that later. (laughs) Although not more like I'm going to tell you there's a loophole, there's not. (laughs) But it's hard, you know. It's hard and it's crucial to who we are. That affirmation of worth is crucial to what we do in our movement, too, I think. All our social justice work emanates, evolves from that one supposition. This is the political part, you know, of worth. Our work on behalf of LGBTQ rights, civil rights, the movement's engagement in the Black Lives Matter movement now, the services, working for services for those among us who are homeless or hungry, 
all of them come back to that core affirmation of the worth of every single person. Hugh Taft Morales, an ethical culture leader who many of you know, he was a member, still is a member of West and came up out of this community. He now serves the ethical societies in Baltimore and Philadelphia. He has a particular gift at leaders' meetings when we get excited about a social justice issue. And there is plenty to get excited about out there, right? There are plenty of things that need fixing in the world. Well, Hugh has a special gift at being able to say, but what does this have to do with ethical culture? How is our voice called to this particular cause? Why is this important to us? Over and over again, the answer that we find is because it's about worth, about our insistence on the affirmation of worth in every person. It's one reason, I think, why over our history, ethical culture has so often stood for those who are cast off by society, called irredeemable. In the 19th century, in Adler's time, it was workers and tenement residents in New York City, as Adler created the first labor laws, working with many others. Often now, today, and in our history in the past as well, it's prisoners people in the criminal justice system, returning citizens coming out of that system. All of that work goes back to the affirmation of worth for every person, the people who have made mistakes, the people whose voices cannot be heard, every person. I want to invite you back into my vacation again. It wasn't all just reading novels. We also did two very large, complicated puzzles. So that was important. And then we were in a beautiful place on our vacation, a place full of nature, birds, shells, water. We were right near a beach, and I like to go down in the morning and walk on the beach, something that isn't available to me in my regular life, nor to many of us. And I had an experience one morning that I found so, I think arresting might be the word. If you're a Facebook friend of mine, and if you're not, you can ask me and I'll say yes, because I affirm your Facebook worth, I guess. Um, but if, if, you, if you are, you can click on my page and see, because I actually captured part of the moment on video. I was out on the beach with my older daughter, Marcella, and we were just kind of looking at the water. Marcella was obsessively searching for the conical um, uh, seashell she really wanted and I think never found. It's like Atlantis, you know. Um, and, and as I looked out at the waves, I saw something. We had been on a boat tour the day before, and we had been looking for, uh, for dolphins and didn't find any on that boat tour. At one point, we thought we saw one, but it was like part of a duck, you know. And then there was a buoy that looked kind of, but no, it was a buoy. Well, all of a sudden, right there on the beach, very close to the shore, I saw a fin come up out of the water. And then another one. And then for five minutes... A dolphin, or actually, I think, two, played in the water right by the shore. People started getting concerned, actually. It was so close that they were too close. But no, they just kept on going down the beach and played a little bit more and then swam off out into the open ocean. 
I had never been so close to a dolphin before, not even in a SeaWorld-type environment. And it was just magical. It was amazing to see them there. And it had me thinking all day I couldn't shake that experience of seeing them. It had me thinking about what worth means when we extend the circle further, you know. We think, especially within humanism, actually, sometimes we're, we're accused of being human-centric, of thinking only about the worth of other humans, although I would say that if we got to the worth of every human, we'd be doing pretty well, frankly. But, but still, seeing that dolphin, it wasn't just that it was rare. It wasn't just that it was beautiful, although both those things were true. There was some sense of recognition I experienced. That's the only way I can describe it, a sense of connection. And so it had me thinking about what happens when we extend that idea of worth further and further. I was vegetarian for four years at the end of high school and the beginning of college. And then I I got a little sick, and, and it wasn't working well, and so I started eating meat again. And I'm not vegetarian now, although I prefer to order fish or vegetables. I kind of call myself like I'm a lazy semi-vegetarian. If it's easy for me to order vegetarian, then I will, you know. I don't know, maybe. I don't know if anybody else is that kind of vegetarian, but... <clears throat> You know, it's a confessional sort of time, I guess, today. So I'm a lazy semi-vegetarian for lots of reasons, environmental and health, and, and partly because of that recognition we feel, you know. Years ago, I read one of Barbara Kingsolver's novels, which convinced me never to engage in the killing of predators, can't remember the name of the novel now. I can't. Prodigal Summer. Thank you very much, Abby Dakin. Prodigal Summer, which I recommend to you. It's beautifully written. Just a gorgeous book. But even if I were vegetarian, I know I wouldn't exist here on Earth without displacing animals in some way, without engaging in industries and ways of life that are detrimental to animals and to the environment, to other people too. And so that has me thinking about that idea of worth. You know, the further we extend it, the harder it gets, particularly as we know more and more about how we are connected to each other. I think sometimes about different cultures and spiritualities where when an animal is killed for food or for some other use, a prayer is said, for that animal's spirit. That's not quite my culture or my spirituality, but there's something there that resonates for me. There's something about honoring the loss, honoring the worth, even, even as we ourselves create the loss. The thing is that beyond the sort of trivial part of affirming worth, you know, we don't get to be schmucks, right? Really affirming worth, extending that circle as wide as possible also creates this challenge. It draws us into what King called our network of mutuality. We become more and more aware about the things we do that hurt others and the way that we always do those things, you know. 
We can't escape it. The interconnected web that we talk about, it's beautiful and fragile and painful, too, in some ways. Worth, affirming worth, is complicated, I think. The other kind of novels that I like to read, as I mentioned, are about vampires and werewolves, or more recently, Greek, Roman, and Egyptian gods. That's a really good series. They're meant for 12-year-olds, but, you know, they translate. And the thing I like about those novels, about the best of them, is that they avoid the sort of vampires are always bad, werewolves are always good, or sometimes it's the reverse. You can get confused, actually, depending on the series that you're reading because the vampires are different in all of them. And, and you know, But the best of those novels avoid that, that sort of easy categorization. They acknowledge the mess of interrelatedness among species, vampires and wolves, and among people, too. They acknowledge the way that we fall short sometimes of acting so as to affirm the worth of every person, or the way, perhaps, that our worths can be in conflict with each other, through no one's fault, but just through life, you know? Sometimes I talk about utilitarianism, that particular philosophical approach that kind of um, helps you decide how to act by adding up all of the potential good experienced in a certain situation. It's like the math formula approach to philosophy. So you have a certain amount of good, and it's each, it's all worth a certain amount, and I have a certain amount of good, and you add it up, and you try to come to the solution that has the most amount of good and the least amount of bad for the most amount of people, and... I think most of the time that doesn't feel like a philosophy that, that works for us, but other times I wonder, you know, because of the way that we are interconnected, I think what it does for us is acknowledge the reality that affirming fully the worth of every person is well-nigh impossible on a practical level. There's another piece about worth, I think, that's important in our social justice work. The first is that acknowledgement of the messiness of the world, the way that we are caught all the time in that network, hoping to affirm the worth of every person, every being, and falling short, since we're human ourselves. The other piece in our justice work is our particular call, our movement's call to see the worth of all the people in a particular situation, even as we work for justice. And this can get tricky, too, you know. You stand there on the side of a particular issue, sure about what you fight for, sure about what you believe in, And yet at the same time, part of what we in particular are asked to do, part of what we ask ourselves to do, is that even while we are fighting for that, we notice and affirm the worth of the person on the other side of the issue, of the aisle, of the belief. It's a lot to hold all of that. to keep fighting for what you believe in while working as hard as possible to affirm the worth of the person in front of you, the person with the other sign. 
But I think that the, that the deeper spiritual work, the, the sense of relationship to all that is, is worth the mental and emotional complication. So some of that is the political, or maybe it's really kind of the universal application of worth, what it means to affirm worth in our justice work as we act out in the world. Now let's get personal with it. Affirming the worth of abstract groups of people, you know, or beings, the homeless, the dolphins. Sometimes that's easier, actually, than affirming the worth of those right in front of us. Our parents, our children, Republicans, (laughs) Democrats. How do we affirm the worth of the people that we see every day? Or how do we act in such a way that shows that affirmation of their worth? Some of you with young children or who have reared children are familiar with the idea of positive parenting and positive discipline. It's about responding to children not with punishment or discipline in a punitive sense, but instead with boundaries and consequences and attention. One of the kind of local positive parenting groups put up a a picture on January 1st with a reminder, respond more, react less. I saw it on my phone, which I was looking at while my kids were saying something to me. I don't even know what it was. (laughs) Respond more, react less. One of the ways that we can practically show our affirmation of our child's worth. My own work on parenting, which, as you can gather, is very much a work in progress, it's been so important to me in all my relationships, actually, helping me to see how I want to respond to others in a way that affirms their worth. I think sometimes that positive parenting and positive discipline groups are the ones that are are coming up with some of those practical tools for worth affirmation the way we treat our children or the way we try to treat our children is really the way we might want to try to treat all beings, doing our best to create a situation that allows them to flourish, creating boundaries and affirming worth always within that. Felix Adler had a paradigm when he talked about worth. It was a worth-value paradigm. So he talked about value being um, all of the things that we bring to society, you know, our, um, our salary, but also, you know, what we, what we contribute in our volunteer work, all the ways that we're good for society. And what he said was, you know, our value was one thing. Sorry, we're over here. Our value was one thing. And our worth was another and different. And even when we had no value at all, our worth was constant. It was always there. It ties right into that people as ends in themselves, not means to an end. You can see that, right? The way that worth is constant. And so I think about that worth-value paradigm in very personal ways, too, in family lives. I think about relatives or friends who are in the grips of dementia. 
no longer present in the same way, no longer even themselves in a way that we can recognize. How are we called to affirm their deep worth despite a diminishment of the value that they bring? What does it look like when we do that? And what rewards, because I think they are deep, does that practice bring to our own lives? Adler included in his understanding of value things that we would call kind of personality, being pleasant or funny or nice. He said all of that were traits or characteristics and they had nothing to do with your worth. Which means, I mean, it gets even worse. You know, you have to affirm the the worth of those really obnoxious, cantankerous people in your lives. What does that look like, I wonder? How do we do it? I think about the network of mutuality that we talked about politically, universally. It works personally, too, I think. The affirmation of worth in another person doesn't mean allowing them to behave in ways that are detrimental to your own health and happiness or to a community's health and happiness. As with our children, with all people, we have boundaries on behavior in broader society, right, and in our own very personal lives. And so the question then becomes how we honor worth with and through that, noticing how people act, noticing when their actions hurt us, and engaging with them or seeking safety or solace elsewhere, and even then, at the same time, affirming worth. Not easy, but worthwhile, pun intended. In affirming each other's worth, I think we affirm our connection to them and heighten our own worth as well. Now to be just a little philosophical. Where does worth come from? Does it matter? That's always my question with philosophical things. Does it really matter? You know, different religious traditions have different responses to this question, where worth comes from. It's actually one of the things that connects religions to each other because almost all of them at their core have at least a branch or a strain that affirms the worth of people. Frequently at social justice rallies, I'll find that we're saying in different ways the same thing, that we stand here because people are worthy. In some religious traditions, they might say people are made in the image of God, imago dei, that they're worthy because of that. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the transcendentalist, talked about the divine spark within, and Felix Adler talked about that too. He was a student and friend of Emerson's. I think about the text of our song that we're using through January. It's text that comes from Rumi, the Sufi mystic and poet. And it's the part that we're singing is a part of a longer piece. And it's a translation that, that is fine and works with the meter. But there are other translations I like better that I wanted to share with you. You might remember it goes, as we sing it, Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving, Ours is no caravan of despair. Come yet again, come. Great, I didn't write that down, so so glad I remembered that. Thanks, Bailey. 
It goes on in that translation, come even if you have broken your vow a hundred times. Come. Yet again, come. But then there are other translations, ones that may be closer to the original text. A translation by Amin Malak, Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, idolater, worshiper of fire. All things that were considered verboten, forbidden, though you have broken your vows a thousand times. And then by Martha Neeb, come, come again, whoever you are, come, heathen, fire worshiper, or idolatrous, come. Even if you broke your penitence a hundred times, ours is the portal of hope. Come as you are. My favorite version is that most arresting one, heathen, fire worshiper, idolatrous. You can sub in, you know, any word that's difficult for you. Frankly, keeping worshiper in might be good for this community, right? (laughs) What Rumi is saying is even if you are the thing that I cast away from myself, even if you have broken your vows and made mistakes a thousand times, come. Yet again, come. That idea of welcoming all, finding worth in all. There's a reason, I think, that the quote from Alexander McCall Smith, the one that we started with, said that this is a byproduct of being a philosopher. She didn't say what kind of philosopher. It's any kind at all. My experience has been that if we are thoughtful about life, no matter what path we take to get there, religious mystics of almost any stripe, philosophers throughout the world, when we think deeply and wisely in almost any way, we begin to see our connection with all things. We begin to affirm that all are worthy. And what about ourselves? Because always I think we have to start there with the worth of ourselves. A sense of self strong enough to engage well and healthfully with others so that there can be a mutuality of engagement around worth. And we have a rich legacy, again, from religious and philosophical strains of honoring our own selves, noticing the divine spark within The phrase that's often used in ethical culture is to elicit the best in others and thereby in ourselves, the mutuality of relationship in ethics. And there's a a beautiful story that I love that, that speaks about that importance of worth and also of understanding our connection to others. It comes from the rabbinic tradition and talks about a rabbi who carried two stones, one in each pocket, a stone in his right pocket to remind him he was made in the image of God, and a stone in his left pocket to remind him he would be ashes to ashes and dust to dust in the end. Our version might be that we are made of the same stuff as stars, and we are also just a speck in the universe, those two pebbles that we hold. Many ways to get to the same idea. 
So all across religions and philosophies, you see this this impulse toward worth. It's a humanistic impulse, I think, but it's found not just in humanism alone. It's found all over the world, the affirmation of worth of every person. Well, the other thing that religions and philosophies do is is ask us to change our lives, to change our practices, to be in keeping with our values. And ethical culture is no different. The first Sunday in January, this community sets intentions, and so I'd like to invite you to do that now. You have with you a yellow card, and if you don't, the ushers have more. You can raise your hand. There's not really anything magic about the yellow card, actually. But ushers, so just keep your hand. Oh, the chorus needs yellow cards. I heard on the radio that the top three resolutions in America are to lose weight, to quit smoking, and to learn something new. And I thought about how our resolutions, our commitments, might be different if we thought not about how we looked, if we thought instead about how we treat ourselves, whether we are treating ourselves as deeply worthy, whether there were any places where there was a gap there. To think, how can I move toward closing that gap? Or then we might think, where in my life am I struggling to see another as fully worthy? Whose worth do I miss? And how might I close the gap there? I encourage you then to write your intentions, your commitments, to think as you write not just about the end goal, but about the practices you might put into place that could help you. Is it time with another person or time alone? Are there poems or readings you might turn to? How might you reestablish connection? How might you affirm your own worth, affirm the worth of another with whom you struggle? And I want to offer you an option that as you write on these cards, you might slip them in your pocket or in your purse and take them with you. You might stick it up on your bulletin board or wherever you need a reminder. Or if you like, you can fold it and write your name and address and drop it in the collection basket. And we can mail it to you six months from now. We won't open it or read it. It'll just be for you. So I offer you that option as well, if that helps your intention setting. Now I invite the chorus to sing us through and into our reflection.
as we continue to explore the affirmation of worth, our own and each other's.